Good morning. We continue. The struggle is real, kind of just like those guys. But before we start that, I want to just do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, something we haven't talked about a whole lot is our Connect Card Challenge. How many of you have been filling out your Connect Card every week? Because you know, if you do that and only get, we said, what, you missed three times? Now, uh, that's total. We will give you a fantastic, wonderful, amazing prize if you've made it all the way through Easter because church attendance is important to us. So, uh, Go with that. So here we go. The struggle is real. And as Brian gave me uh, the passage, he said, hey, you know, this is one of the things we'd like to talk about. It excited me because it reminded me of a preacher joke I heard when I was a little kid. And I want to share that preacher joke with me. How many people want to hear a preacher joke? If you don't, the struggle is real. Get to hear it anyway. All right. So Moses and, and Jesus, they're out for a round of golf at the pearly gates. <clears throat> and so they come across this huge water hazard. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to hit it right over that water hazard. And Moses says, there is no way you can hit it over that water hazard. Jesus says, hey, Tiger Woods can do it. I can do it. So he takes a swing, up goes the ball, and plop right in the water. Moses says, all right, I'll get your ball. So he goes down there. He parts the water, walks on dry land, grabs the ball, gives it back to Jesus. Moses says, just play around. Jesus says, no. Tiger Woods can do it. I can do it. Takes a swing. Ball goes up. Plop right in the water. Moses says, ah, get your ball again. Goes down there. Parts the water. Walks on dry land. Grabs the ball. Gives it back to Jesus. Moses says, go around. I'm not getting your ball again. Jesus says, if Tiger Woods can do it, I can do it. Moses says, all right. So Jesus hits the ball and plop right in the water. Moses says, I'm not getting it for you. Jesus says, that's all right. So he goes, he walks on water. Reaches down and grabs the ball. Well, as this is happening, the guys behind them get a little frustrated, so they want to play through. They come up to Moses, and they see Jesus walking on the water, and they say, who is that guy down there? Does he, does he think he's Jesus? And Moses looks at him and says, no, that guy thinks he's Tiger Woods. <laughs> All right, thank you for being much, that, that was a much kinder laugh than it really deserved. It's a terrible joke. But it actually fit in extremely well with what we're talking about today, because we we need to experience the real Jesus. And we're entering into a season, especially the Easter season. Has this warm weather kind of really gotten people the mood for spring? And when this warm weather breaks and it gets cold, I'm going to hate it. It's going to be awful. So hopefully let's all pray for warm weather. But as we kind of get into the spring season, we see all sorts of shows and all sorts of documentaries about who the real Jesus really is. You know, did he do all these miracles? Did he did he not? Who was the real historical Jesus? And we're going to see all of this over and over. But we've got to come to terms. Who was Jesus really? Because the real Jesus, the real Jesus can be extremely uncomfortable. What he asked us to do. There was a critically acclaimed movie, won all sorts of awards for its directing and acting and, and, its, uh, and just the script. It was amazing. It was called Talladega Nights. But they had a part in there that kind of epitomizes what we're talking about. Ricky Bobby, who, if you're not first, you're last, would only pray, I mean, people watch it, who would he only pray to? Baby Jesus. And why? Because baby Jesus was who made him feel comfortable. And here's the thing, guys. That was silly. But I think there's some truth in it for us. Because there's a temptation in all of our hearts 
to do this, to create a designer Jesus, to download him into our phones and so we can listen to him and get the Jesus we want to get. You know, we like the grace and we like the joy, but we don't really like the purity and what he says about sin. Some of us really like the judgment. And so we have this tendency, we have this temptation to see Jesus the way we want to see him. But, if Jesus is going to be any help to us at all, we need to hear what He says on His terms. We need Him to challenge us. We need Him to say things to us that we may not want to hear. Because if Jesus is who He says He is, if Jesus is the the Jesus of the Bible, if Jesus is, as the passage that Kirsten read and Katie the Jesus that walked on water, the Jesus that said that I am the I am, if He is truly God, then maybe we need to be quiet and listen to what He has to say. And if you want, you can turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be discussing the passage that was read earlier, 22 through 36. But in this passage, this helps us through our struggles. Because in this passage, Jesus challenges us in three ways. He challenges our view of reality. He challenges our heart's loyalty. And he challenges what should we really fear. Because when we see Jesus in the storm, we will never be able to see that designer Jesus again. Because Jesus changes our view of reality. One of the conversations that Tracy and I, we have quite a bit, and maybe you have one of these, these conversations in your home as well, but we sit down at the table and we ask, is our family going in the direction we want it to go? Are, do we have purpose for our family? Is, is our marriage on the right track? Is there meaning to what we're doing? And the great thing about this is greater minds than I have been asking these questions for as long as probably man has been around. Why are we here? Where are we going? Is there purpose in life? Is there meaning to why I am here? And most of these times, most of the time, these questions pop up when the storms are around us. And in this passage, we have the disciples once again in one of those situations. And you've got to be, they've got to be asking those same things because Again, it's in the middle of the night, they're in the middle of the storm, they're in a boat, and they're probably wondering, Peter, James, what are we doing? Once again, we think we're going to die. And what's the purpose? It just feels like we're rowing and we're rowing and we're rowing and we're not getting anywhere. And it's in the trials. It's in the storms. It's when our comforts and our expectations and the plan that we have for our life is threatened that we begin to be haunted by the fear that maybe we're just out rowing, going nowhere, and no one notices. And at worst, nobody cares. Eric Hoffer, he's a philosopher, and he, uh, he kind of said this best. He says, man is eminently a storyteller. His search for a purpose, a cause, an ideal, a mission, and the like, largely a search for a plot, a pattern, in the development of his life story. A story that is basically without meaning. With... My mic coming in and out. 
Hello, hello. Do you want me to go to the, I, I can go to the different, is it going or not? Is it working? All right, if it goes out, let me know. <clears throat> the modern thought of today is this world is just a random place. But we want more, don't, don't we? We want to have a meaning. We want to have a purpose. We want our life stories to be connected to a greater life story. We want our life's mission to be created to a greater life mission. That's the desire of our heart. But that's not the main thought of today's world. The main thought of today's world is this world is just a random place. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. And this is what you've got. You're the master of your own destiny. You're the author of your own story. And you've got to grab fate by the tail. Let it. Let you be in control of it. And this talk, that there's some God out there that's in control of the universe, and that there actually is some meaning, this is just superstition. Or at best, or at worst, it's just a crutch and a weakness. And I would bet that if you were to go to the average person on the street and you were to ask them, hey, what do you think of the story of Jesus walking on the water? I'm sure you get a mixed reaction from all sorts of people. Some people might believe it was a miracle. Some people may view it with a little bit of superstition, right? There's a Florida State professor out there that he theorized this story was actually just an optical illusion that happened as a phenomenon at that time. The guy's name is Doran Knopf, and he believed that 2,000 years ago, that that specific lake would freeze over, and it would freeze like every 60 to 120 years, and what Jesus was really doing was he's just walking across the ice. And it was just, it just kind of looked like he was walking on water. Now, this raises all sorts of questions. Number one is to, you know, what were the disciples in the boat? Wouldn't they also had to struggle through the ice, and when have they seen that? Would that been reported? So, so there is that, that it kind of raised some questions there, but why, why do you suppose people listen to Dornoff's explanation? The reason people listen to the explanation is because can people walk on water? No. I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't do it, so it met, must not happen. That's a statement of faith, correct? That's a statement saying there is no supernatural. But Jesus, in this passage, he is making us question what is our reality and who is this Jesus? And this is one of those that there could probably be sermon after sermon after sermon talking about is God really who God says he is? But I want to one argument that takes us a little closer to home as to why, there, why in our hearts there is a longing for a supernatural. We feel that supernatural. This past week, uh, I was talking to my mom, and she was telling me that the town I grew up in, Centralia, has been going through a really hard time because of an event that just occurred. She told me that the nephew of a guy I went to high school with just committed suicide. And the way he did it, he told his mom, he'd been going through some hard things, and he told his mom, 
I want to kill myself and I'm going to... And I'm going to be hit by a truck. The mom did everything she could to run out the house, grab her son, and was holding on to him. As he broke free and did exactly what he said he was going to do. A truck hit him and instantly killed him. And as my mom was telling me the story, I'm thinking, you know, what if, what if that was one of my kids? I can only imagine what was going through that mom's mind. And she, she did everything in her power to hold on to her son, but couldn't. But if this world, random series of events, if there's, if there's nothing more than what we see, hear, touch, and can feel, if that's all there is, then why should our heart ache at this story? Why is it that I think about this woman and, and my heart breaks for, why don't we just say, that's just life. The strong survive, the weak die. We've got to move on. We've got to go. We don't do that, do we? It's been about a year that my father died of cancer. When that happened, was I just supposed to say, well, you know what? My dad, he, he just had some cells in his body that, that just weren't right. This is the way of things. No. I wanted Jesus, and I prayed that Jesus would come and walk across the water and heal my dad. I'm sure that this mother prayed that Jesus would walk across the water and heal her son. Because what has happened in these situations violates some moral law that says life is valuable and death is tragic. So there will be depression, there will be sadness, because there is more than just what is in this world. See, the storms of life, the death, the grief, the despair, they point to world outside of our world. They point that there is more than what we can see. Kierkegaard, he puts it this way in Fear and Trembling. He says that the human race passed through the world as a ship goes through the sea. Like the wind through the desert, a thoughtless and fruitless activity. If an eternal oblivion were always lurking for its prey and there was no power strong enough from its maw, how empty then and comfortless life would be. But therefore it is not thus, but as God created man or woman, he so too fashioned a hero. And that hero is Jesus Christ. That hero is pointing, just like the Bible is pointing, that there is more to this life, that there is mission, there is purpose, there, this life is more than just chance. But because of all that, there will also be storms in this life that will make us question our reality. Let me ask the question, why was, why was, why were the disciples in the boat? Should I just switch over this mic? Alright.
All right, here we go. So why were the disciples in the boat? Who put them there? Verse 22, it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples, Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of them to the other side. Why did Jesus get, make them get in the boat? It's because Jesus wanted the disciples to understand who he really was. He wanted to reveal his true character to them. And also Jesus wanted the disciples to go to the other side to fulfill their mission. And their mission was to heal people. Their mission was to tell the love of Jesus. Their mission was to give the people hope that there is that hero, there is that Savior. And that mission is the exact same mission that we have. That mission is why we're building a building. That mission is why we're here today. It's so that we can show Darden Prairie the hope of Jesus Christ. And if that's not your life story, you have not met Jesus in the storm. So there you go. That's point one. Point two is that Jesus also challenges our heart's loyalty. See, he exposes our fear. Matthew 14, 26, it says, When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were everybody? Oh, you guys do better than that. They were? They were terrified. And why were they terrified? It's because they're in the middle of the storm. It's the middle of the night. They have the fear of drowning. They have the fear of, of dying in the cold water. But Jesus is saying, that's not what you should really be afraid of. See, in Matthew 14, a little later, Peter gets out of the boat, he's walking in the water, and he starts to sink. And this is what happened. He says, but when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Jesus is saying there's something bigger here going on. There's something more important to be afraid of. Because the real danger is spiritual. We see this also in Mark chapter 6. This is Mark's account of the story. And this is what he puts in. He says, For they had not understood about the loaves. What had happened right before this is they fed 5,000 people. And then Jesus says, Their hearts were hardened. So these are two pretty big, pretty big harsh rebukes for the disciples. Jesus is telling Peter, you have little faith. They're saying their hearts were hardened. This phrase, hearts were hardened, is used to describe outsiders, hypocrites. For people that only see Jesus the way they want to see Jesus, the people that hear Jesus only the way they want to hear Jesus, the people that are stubborn, and the people that are his enemies. And Jesus is calling the disciples this at this point. And it's why? Because Jesus is trying to impress upon them that he is not this designer Jesus. He's saying, you know what? You guys are with me all the time. You think you're in the inner circle because of your loyalty. But you've got to see who I really am. And we can extrapolate this out to our own lives. You know, we have the opportunity to listen to more sermons than anyone else has heard in the history of the world. We have resources at our fingertips that no one has ever had. And we can listen and we can listen. And we can go to church every Sunday. And we can put our Joy FM sticker on our car. But it's still, we have the temptation to only see Jesus the way we want to see him. And that's why Jesus puts us into the storms. 
Because it's in the storms, it's in the trials, where we find out where our loyalties really lie. You might say, you know what, Brian? My job's not really that important to me. I can, I can get through life without my finances being super part of my life. I, you know, my, my looks, my, my life plan, all those things, they can change. What happens, though, when those things are threatened? It's then we find out whether they're really important to us. When the Bible calls us hard-hearted, Jesus is saying, there are things in this world that are more important than God. And one of the ways we can find out if they're more important than God is through the storms. And why do the storms surface our fears? What trials do is they expose the lie that we're in control of our own destiny, that we can handle it. Tomorrow, I don't know what's really going to happen. Now I think I'm going to go to work, and I think I'm going to have a typical day. Um, Everything's going to be normal. That's what I think. But in the span of what? Minutes, seconds, hours. Everything could change, right? I don't want to think about it, but I could lose my life. I could lose my family. I could lose the job. A tornado could come through and completely devastate everything around here. But it's only in these storms that we're confronted with the fact that we aren't in control. It makes me think back to the earlier story about the mom and her son. The title of the sermon is when we wonder if we've got what it takes. You know what the answer to that is? No, we don't. We don't. A hard heart stubbornly holds on to the lie that we can find ultimate security or happiness or contentment in anything other than Jesus Christ. And many of us live our lives in quiet desperation that a storm is going to come along and wipe out our job, our money, our status, our looks, or whatever it might be. Because it is only in the storm that we begin to figure out what is really important to me. And Jesus is saying the only thing that can calm our fears, the only thing that can give you peace, is me. So how does that happen? And that brings us to our third point, is that Jesus challenges what we should really be afraid of. See, God is a jealous God. He wants to be the one that is worshipped. He wants the one that gets full attention. He wants to be the rock because he knows that he's the one that can get us through these times. But too often we end up worshipping everything else. We allow our job, our money, our family, whatever it might be, to mold our thoughts, to, to make us compromise our actions. And the Bible says... Unless you're in awe, serve, and have your life shaped by God, your life will never be at rest. What Jesus is about to show us is unless we fear him more than all of those other things, or more positively, unless we love and honor him more than anything else, we will always struggle through those storms. And so there are two instances in this story, one written by Matthew and one written by Mark, that show us where our foundation needs to lie. See, in Mark, in Matthew 14, 27, 
the disciples, they're looking out, and they see this guy walking across the water, and they think he's a ghost. And they yell out to him, or like, you know, who is that? And Jesus says, it is I. So why is this an important statement? It is I. And then, in Mark's story, he says, in Mark 6, 48, he says, he was about to pass them by. And this scripture has always kind of been very befuddling to me, because I was like, is this a race? Is Jesus trying to make it to shore quicker than the other person? And Jesus, you know, he has the uh, advantage of walking on the storm. It doesn't seem to bother him. Here the disciples are rowing, they're rowing, they're rowing. So what is he really talking about? So first one, it is I. What's he talking about here? Well, the author, Matthew, is using the same word that was used all the way back in Exodus. See, Moses was told by God through a burning bush that he was supposed to go let his... Bring the people out of slavery. And Moses, obviously a little scared, is kind of wondering, why in the world am I supposed to do this? And under whose authority should I do this? And God responds, tell them, I am is whose authority you are to use. Jesus is using the same words here. He's revealing himself to disciples that he is God, that he is in control, and that he has got it. So a little later on in the Moses story, he's got the people out of slavery. He's bringing them into the promised land, but it's taken a long time. And the people are starting to go crazy. They're trying to go back to idols. Things are just haywire. So he goes to God and he says, God, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I need to know that you're with me. And God says to him, Moses, go into the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by. Basically, what God was saying is, I am going to let you feel my presence. And Jesus, in this story, is he's passing by. He's revealing that he is God, that he is revealing that he is there with these guys. So what's going on? Jesus is saying, the only way you can get through these storms is to have the real Jesus, the real Jesus that's hard, the real Jesus that may put you through storms. Now, he, I'm not saying he puts through every storm you've got, but there are times he will put you in th- through storms so that you will know where your loyalties lie and what you need to do to work on them. And this designer Jesus, where we pick and choose what we like, it's not going to work anymore. Only praying to baby Jesus does not work anymore. We have to pray to the eternal God. Are you afraid of the storm? Because maybe we should be afraid or we should be in awe of what the storm is afraid of. So Jesus gets in the boat. The storm goes away. And Jesus, out of love, is trying to show us with his power that because he knows that until we are more afraid of losing him than all this other stuff, we will never have healed hearts. So, when I was a little kid, roller coasters terrified me. How many people out there, you love roller coasters? How many people, roller coasters terrify you? Okay. I had good reason to be terrified, I think. When I was about 10 years old, my brother got Popular Mechanics Magazine, and there was 
a string of roller coaster deaths that happened at that time. And I think St. Louis actually had one of those. And there was an article in this Popular Mechanics magazine that went into pretty specific detail of how all these people died. I got to the magazine before my parents could get to the magazine. And I read them all. And from that point on, I was scared to get into a roller coaster. It also didn't help that I went to Worlds of Fun in Kansas City and got on the Oriental, Oriental Express. We got halfway up the hill. And it stopped for what, to me, felt like an eternity. Um, It was probably for like 30 minutes, but I thought I was going to die and that we weren't going to make it. We were fine. Well, after that, so I'm terrified to get on a roller coaster, but I live in a family that they love roller coasters. We go to Kings Island, Cincinnati. And at the time, they had the longest, fastest, tallest roller coaster that had been built for an 11, 12-year-old boy. It was the Beast. How many, anybody ridden the beast? Hey, we have some beast people. It's a fun roller coaster, but I was scared to get on it. And I said, I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to do it until I said, I'll do it under one condition. Dad, you have to be with me the entire time. I'm not going to look. I'm going to take my glasses off. And you just got to make sure that I get on that roller coaster and that you stay with me through the entire thing. So we got through the line, and the line felt like it took forever. People were crazy. I sit down on the roller coaster. The lap bar comes down. I'm scared to death that I'm going to just bolt as soon as I can. I'm telling my dad, I'm going to bolt, I'm going to bolt, I'm going to bolt. And he's saying, no, you're not. It was going to be hard anyway, because my dad was a large guy, and I was cramped in there. It would have taken a lot of work. But we go around that first curve, and then we go up the hill, the clink, 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 clink. And then we get to the top, and you kind of hang a little bit, right? And then we go down, and guess what? It was amazing. I loved it. And I knew I was going to love it as soon as I could get past that first hill. See, my dad, my dad was the strength of my comfort. He was my courage. And I knew that if I kept him close, It was going to be okay. And I was going to have the time of my life. So what's the point of this miracle? Why why is it that Jesus walking on water seems to be one of the most important miracles in the Bible? And why is there this whole discussion of Peter walking on water as well? Well, here's one of my theories. Peter wanted to walk on water. So that he could be with Jesus. Just like I wanted to be with my dad. Because Peter knew that if he was with Jesus, it was going to be okay. Where are you with Jesus? What do you need to do so that you can be closer to your father? So that he will be your comfort, he will be your strength. He will be your courage to get you through these storms. And I'd say, one of the easiest ways to do this, read your Bible and pray. Martin Luther wrote a letter to his his barber, and the barber had asked, what do you do to get closer to God? You know, Martin Luther, one of the, the fathers of the Protestant religion, you know what he says? I read my Bible and I pray. Take notes on it. That's it. So I ask you today, 
Are you willing to get out of the boat and simply move to Jesus? Would you stand with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for revealing yourself through the storms. I thank you that that you show us who you really are and that you try to dispel all the myths and all the, the pretense that we put on you and that you try to break it all down to say, you know what, I am so much bigger and better and more powerful than what you could ever imagine. God, help us move closer to that God, to that Jesus, by simply drawing closer to you through praying and through listening to your word. Help us do that, Lord, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.